It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Welcome to Hey, Great Shot. This is the Great Shot Podcast, a Crack Rackets and Tennis Channel Podcast Network production. My name is Alex Gruskin. On today's show, we continue our preview of the 2021 U.S. Open, talking about the top five contenders for the women's singles crown. Joining us on the show to do just that is the founder of Tennis Abstract, host of both the Tennis Abstract and Expected Points podcast, and a returning champion here on our show, Jeff Sackman. He and I discuss Ashley Barty's success here in 2021. We try to contextualize it within the broader WTA history as well. We talk about Naomi Osaka's form entering this event, how much we should respect her past results versus weighing how she's looked on court here in 2021 over the past few months months, of course, we get into some other names as well, Arena Sabalenka, Garbine Muguruza, Karolina Pliskova, and so much more. We break down the numbers of late on the WTA Tour as well. It is a fantastic conversation that I know all of you listeners are going to enjoy. Of course, I will also point out, if you missed our discussion on the Dark Horses in the Men's Singles event, we had that discussion with David Kane yesterday. You can find that by scrolling down in your Great Shot podcast feed. We're still going to discuss the women's dark horses, the top contenders on the men's side. We're going to look at both the men and women in American tennis entering this U.S. Open as well over these next couple of days. Draw previews as they come out. We've talked U.S. Open qualifying on our website, crackrackets.com. If you haven't, go read Damien Kuss' piece on the subject. We're trying to cover each and every aspect of this 2021 U.S. Open to ensure you listeners, you fans, have all the information you need to to enjoy the year's final Grand Slam event. Of course, the last thing I want to mention before we get to this podcast is that these shows are made possible day in, day out because of the support we get from all of you, because of the support we get from our Patreon family, and of course, because of the support we get from our friends over at Turna Tennis. You guys are always wondering, that iconic blue color, what is that? Well, that's Turna Grip, and if it's good enough for those pros, it is good enough for you as well. It's the only grip that gets tackier when you sweat. It's performance in hot and humid conditions unmatched, I can personally attest to the quality of the product. If it's good enough for my sweat, it's certainly good enough for all of you. You can contact and join the Turner Tennis team by emailing sales at uniquesports.com or calling 800-554-3707. You let them know we here at Cracked Rackets sent you. They'll hook you up with discounted college pricing, hook you up with free samples as well. Again, we're so grateful for their support. The least we can do, ask you to support them as well. Contact Turner Tennis by emailing sales at uniquesports.com or calling 800-554-3707. With all that said, let's get to it. Top five women's singles contenders entering the 2021 U.S. Open with Tennis Abstracts, Jeff Sackman. This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. 
Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. Joining us on the podcast once again today to break down our top five contenders for the women's singles title at the 2021 U.S. Open. You know him as a returning champion here on our Cracked Racket shows. Of course, if you want to follow any of the numbers surrounding the 2021 ATP and WTA seasons, you absolutely are using his website, tennisabstract.com. Am I a little bit salty that he's trying to take my crown as the biggest and most frequent podcaster in the tennis twitter universe absolutely nevertheless it is always a pleasure to welcome jeff sackman back to the show jeff hey great shot my friend how are you doing today i am good and i want to start by hijacking your show a little bit i have some questions for you alex are you ready i am always ready let's rock and roll okay who is the shortest player in the atp top 50 atp top 50 i mean you'd want to say diego schwartzman so i'm just gonna go with that it's Schwartzman. And where do you think Schwartzman ranks among the top 50 in hold percentage? Oh, I should know this off the top of my head. I'm going to say 46th. 48th. That's really good. Uh, and who do you think is the second shortest player on in the ATP top 50? This is a hard one. So I'm going to say Casper Ruud, and you're going to say he's 7th, just because I know how big of an outlier it feels like he is because he's so high up the hold percentage. Yeah, that's almost exactly right. I'm not sure if he's 7th. I, I don't really know. Um, I only know the answers to the questions I'm asking. I'm like, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm like the late great Alex Trebek here. Um, the second shortest, I didn't know this before I looked it up. The second shortest player in the top 50 is Dan, Dan Evans. Oh, and where do you think Evans ranks by hold percentage? He I feels like a 22 sort of guy. 32. Okay. Okay. And where I'm going with this is who's the shortest player in the WTA top 50? Well, Lauren Davis isn't in the top 50, so I'm going to go with, ooh, who's the shortest player in the top 50? Is it Putin Seva? She's not exactly yeah. tall. Yeah, Yulia is the shortest, and it's not even really that close. And where do you think she ranks by hold percentage? Oh, uh, like, I'm going to say 38th. Wow, you're good. 40th. So, this is where <laughs> it gets good. Who is the second shortest player in the WTA top 50? Uh, okay, so here's the thing. If it's Barty, because I know she's second, um... But I, is it Barty? It's Barty. Uh-oh. And where do you think? And where does Barty rank by by hold percentage? Well, this I know is second behind Osaka because I was looking at the top ten earlier this morning. Yeah, and I mean, I kind of also just can to... I add a caveat to that? There are two people who are sniffing around the eighty percent range because the eighty percent. God, it's good to have you back, my friend. I missed you. <laughs> uh, but there are two people over eighty percent in hold percentage right now, and that's the exclusive club. Because if you look, Prime Serena, all the you know Prime Pliskova sniffs that range. She's not quite there. But if you can eclipse the eighty percent mark in hold percentage on the WTA tour, that's the elite of the elite number. And that Ashley Bar is over that 80 percent is absolutely nuts so i i i didn't realize this until I, I said something about this on my daily podcast a few months ago and i i didn't realize quite how short she was and the question then is why how i guess <laughs> it's not why is he sure she's so short i guess that we can blame her parents for that but i mean <laughs> when she's serving she looks like 
I mean, she is one of the best servers in the game. It's not that she backs it up so well. She legit has one of the best servers in the game, but she's shorter than Simona Halep. And, you know, I love Simona. I, it, it's like every time she lands an ace down the tee, it's like I believe in God a little bit. But <laughs> it's it's that rare. So how is it that Ashley Barty, who is like an, an inch or so shorter than Simona Halep, serves basically like Serena Williams. Like she gets Serena's results. She doesn't serve like Serena, but she gets Serena-like serving results. How does that even work? So uh, do you want to get into Ashley Barty right away? Or do you want to sure. save this for our top contenders portion? Because Well, I'm, I'm sure everyone here is going, every, all your listeners are going to be shocked that we both have Barty in among our top contenders for the <laughs> U.S. Open. Exactly. I mean, let's just get into it right now. So Ashley Barty, and by the way, what we're doing on today's podcast, I mentioned it at the top, we are breaking down our top five contenders for the women's single title entering the 2021 U.S. Open. Of course, I do want to talk to you, Jeff, about some other trends we've noted as well over the past few months since we had, since we last spoke. But the place we have to start today's conversation is obviously Western Southern Open champ, Wimbledon champ. And I would say, well, here's the question. Is she 1A or 1B entering this 2021 U.S. Open? And of course, I'm referring to world number one Ashley Barty. And we are going to talk about Serena withdrawing. That was the big note today. I was going to plan the show starting with that, but we're into it now. So let's just get into Ashley Barty. You look at what she's accomplished this season, Jeff, by every metric you want to use. It has been a step forward for Ashley Barty. Let's even start with that first serve win percentage. I sent this to you two days ago in our Twitter DMs. She's improved her first serve win percentage each season over the past five seasons. Now, five years ago, it was at 70%. You look at this season through 47 matches of play, it's at 74.6%. By the way, through those 47 matches of play, she's 40-7 and seven overall. That's an 85% win percentage. She's won five titles, six fi- uh, made six finals in 12 total events. I went back in history, and I promise I am going to answer your question of why I think she is so effective on serve eventually, but I'm going to spin this first into a question to you. I'm going to take this back from you, Ken Jennings. Alex Trebek still reigns on this podcast, but my question is, you look at her season, 40-7 and seven overall, a ridiculous numbers in terms of, I believe it's 14-1 and one against the top 20, 7-1 against the top 10. I went back in time and I looked at the best seasons and I, I came up with a list. Serena, Celis, Navratilova, Everett, Steffi Graf, and, and honestly, Justine Ennin for her little three-year run as well. They all ripped off three consecutive seasons where they each won 90% of their matches. They won multiple slams per season. They averaged double-digit top 10 wins per season. And they're making in about 18 tournaments was the average. They're making about 12 finals, winning about eight and a half titles. Ashley Barty's not quite in that group yet, but with a strong fall... I think she's got a a chance to crack that group. I think this season really is that special. I mean, 14-1 against top 20, 7-1 against top 10. She hasn't played as frequently as those players played, but that's also a product of this era, Jeff. Like, she's in the midst of a special season. I I would not go that far. Okay, good. Push back. I like this. Friends can disagree. I mean, you you said something about her being one A or one B, and I'll I'll start by pushing back against there, just to, so you understand. Like I'm I'm on the Barty train here. <laughs> like there's there's no one A and one B right here. I mean, whether whatever it is that's holding back 
Naomi Osaka right now, like I feel for her, whatever she's going through, that doesn't, we can't adjust for that and say she's still 1B at the US Open. She just hasn't put up the results for that. So, I mean, to me, Barty is by far and away the favorite. And some of the reasons are the, the results you're talking about. She's been that consistent, I guess, th there's a few exceptions, especially the, the Olympics loss. But I mean, yeah, she's been great. On the other hand, the big difference to me between what Barty's doing now and the players you mentioned in the past is, I think all the players you're mentioning in the past, they won a lot of matches against a few really great players. So Serena had Venus, she had Hennen, um, Hennen had Kleisers in Serena. Um, if you look at Celis and Graf, they're playing each other and Arantxa they're playing each other a ton. So if you're going to put up an 85, 90% winning percentage season before 2010 or 2012, let's say you're beating the, you're beating top five players a lot. I, I think I even checked that since I just heard this for the first time now, but <laughs> you're, you're beating the best players a lot. And Barty isn't doing that. It's not her fault, but Barty hasn't played a top 10 player since Sabalenka beat her in Madrid. No, that's not true. She beat number 10 Krachikova. I'm looking for single digits and cheating here. She hasn't be, she hasn't played a top nine player since Madrid when she lost to Sabalenka. She hasn't beaten a top nine player since Sabalenka and Stuttgart. So again, it's not her fault. She can't control the draw except for the fact that she could have beaten Soribes Tormo in Tokyo. But it's it's tough for me to put her anywhere near the same level as the other people you're talking about when she has tournament wins against Jill Teichman. I mean, it's great story, Jill Teichman, but I mean, she didn't she didn't play a top eight seed in Cincinnati. So that kind of stuff adds up. It's, aside from the Stuttgart title, when she really did have a legit great run against great players, I guess that in Miami is the other pretty solid one. It's been a season full of stuff like that. I mean, at various times, she's had to beat some hot players like Muguruza in, um, at the very beginning of the season. But for the most part, the people she's playing are, in, it, it's the nature of the field right now. I mean, I'm not sure who it would be unless Osaka was in form and she was playing Osaka six or seven times this year. But there's just no, there's no challenger like that. So I'm, I think if, if you go back and find what I was saying, maybe to you even in the first part of the season, I was skeptical about Barty for this very reason. She hadn't, I think she hadn't played it or beaten a top 10 player in a really long time just because she hadn't played them. And it's gotten better since then, clearly, with the Miami and Stuttgart titles, especially. But it's it's still just it's so hard in this field to really cement the fact that you're great because she doesn't get that many chances to play Sabalenka, Osaka. Um, I mean, we don't know where Andreescu is. There's all these really powerful, threatening players who we don't really know whether Barty has the drop on them. So, I mean, hopefully we'll find out in New York, but it, it, I feel like she, she's still kind of number one because no one else is better than her, not because she's dominant at the level of the other people you're talking about. All of that is fair, and I agree with you. She needs to win the U.S. Open, certainly rip off you know seven consecutive dominant wins, get a couple top ten wins in that metric, to be in the breath of those five I mentioned. I'm just saying she is on pace. The other way I would push back is to say if we agree that the standard of what it is to be a top 10 player right now may be a bit lower than it has been in that 2010s era. I think we would both also agree that the standard of what it is to be a top 20 player is higher than it's maybe ever been. 
I could make the case that 40 players right now are top 20 players, and I know that doesn't make sense, but it does make sense because on any given week, you know, Jess Pagula right now is like 13th in the race to the year-end finals. She has been a top 20 player. She's not currently ranked inside the top 20, and so... I'm looking at additional metrics because, you know, again, top 10 wins in their prime seasons. Justine Ennen in her prime season, which I believe 2007, she had 22 top 10 wins. 2006, (laughs) she had, yeah, 16 top 10 wins as well. You look for Serena, 2013, she had 21 top 10 wins. 2002, she had 17 top 10 wins. I mean, Barty right now is at seven. But she is at four, or what is it? Seventeen top twenty wins, or fourteen top? Uh, is it seventeen or fourteen? I think it's fourteen uh, top twenty wins. Let's see, I have it here. Fourteen top twenty wins. I know they're not directly equivalent, but if it's not that group, I think she is definitely hanging out in the Venus Sharapova. Borderline Kleisters, Kleisters peak. I have that number in front of me as well. Kim Kleisters in her prime. 2003 season you want to guess how many top 20 wins she had Mm, 12 21 21 i know it's ridiculous 2003 she beat ennin three four times she beat capriati she beat moresmo four times she beat everyone she beat a lot of people in 2003 i i don't know i i just because I don't think it's fair to say – I mean you're right when you say Barty is better than everyone else and that there just aren't that many people on the level. Uh, but you look for Ashley Barty's numbers. It's the continued success on the first serve. It's the fact that her break percentage, 39. what is it, 7% this season, that's a career high for her. And that gets her in the top 20 of WTA returners. And with this, you know, the dominance she's been on, it just, she doesn't beat herself and she does beat you. If you leave a ball short in the center of the court, and this gets back to your opening question of why is Ashley Barty able to hold serve the way that she is, I don't think there's a better first forehand right now in the women's game. And it's not the heaviest first forehand. It's not the most overpowering first forehand. But it's in the top tier in terms of both of those qualities. And she hits the ball on a dime. She can go down the line. She can go short angle cross court. She had some plus one inside out forehands in that final against Teichman where you were just like, are you kidding me? Like, how do you hit that ball from that position at your height? It's just the power she can generate the control she has off of that wing, the difference between her slice and Carolina Pliskova's slice was what made the difference in between the two results for Jill Teichman. When Carolina Pliskova's forced to slice, that ball is floating in the air, and Teichman got a clean rip at that shot. When she's playing that Ashley Barty backhand slice, you know, that ball stays low. It's not in your strike zone, and Barty's ability to hit that backhand down, slice down the line it's reminiscent of the way Rafa plays his backhand down the line to force opponents to play to his forehand. The way Barty hits her slice down the line forces opponents to play to her forehand. And her her movement, her ability to find forehands from any position on the court, she's the best volleyer in the women's game as well. Again, she doesn't beat herself, and if you leave a ball in the center, she's going to beat you. You have to play overpowering, perfect tennis to beat her right now. And as you've mentioned, there's like three players who are in Serena Williams Power Tennis Country Club. There's the reference 15 minutes in. Don't worry. I was going to sneak it in that are capable of playing that tennis. So like I, I do think it's a credit to her. Like I, I do think she, it, it belong, she belongs this season in that, if not the top conversation, in that Sharapova-Venus second tier. So what 
what happens with it? okay so that's interesting what that you're was a long rant this. i apologize no no that's that's good um so first thing you're right she's so solid off the ground the second shot is fantastic i was surprised to see just how high her ace rate is because when you're talking about somebody so short being so effective on serve you usually figure they're doing something else beyond the serve like maybe the serve is setting up a good second shot like the similarly short matteo berrettini but Barty is second on tour by ace rate, um, just short of 10%, second only to Serena Williams, which is pretty good company. Uh, in Cincinnati, all, let me see, I just had that window open. Where'd we go? Since, this, is, this is crazy. Cincinnati <laughs> ace rates, five straight matches, 12%, 11.8%, 14.6%, 18.8%, 18.6% against Teichman. I mean, that, that's unreal stuff, just just serving so it you know the fact that she's so i'm not sure what the right word is here but she's so solid the, you're talking about her always putting away those those makeable winners and I've, ever since i was a kid i've always thought how great would a tennis player be if someone came along who just played perfectly and i don't mean that like played like a perfect robot that could outplay all humans i just mean someone who didn't make mistakes who that's by high percentage i get it no for jensen brooksby it's literally jensen brooksby is tennis by math he's the daryl morey james harden equivalent in tennis so if you if you're jensen brooksby but have a little bit better tools relative to your tour which, which i think makes you basically ash barty right yeah so if that's who barty is which is i mean scary to think about if you're somebody else how do you explain losing to Soribe's Tormo, I guess Lynette and, and Goff were retirements, but losing to Bedosa on clay, losing to Danielle Collins in Australia earlier this year? How, how does she lose matches if she's that player? Because every so often the machine has an error, like it does. I mean, A, it, it, case in point is her improvement as a returner, and I think that has been the missing piece for her. And she has gotten better swinging through her backhand. If you, Again, that's an eye test thing. I don't have a number to back that up. I apologize for that. You know I try my best, especially when it's with you. Um, I, I think the backhand has made noticeable improvements. I think her backhand slice return, she has made the improvement to put that block slice return. It's probably Federer 1 Barty too, in terms of just players in general who are able to execute that shot uh, appropriately, or excuse me, uh, at an at a high level. Um, you talk about the loss to Bedosa. Hey, I don't think that's a bad loss. Like we learned, Paula Bedosa by every metric, top eleven, top twelve player here this season. B, she played that Charleston event. I think three days after she won in Miami. So I'm going to call that a schedule loss. I know that's not a real thing, but it is a real thing. And so I just, again, I, I, I don't, I viewed that as a win for Bedosa more than a loss for Ashley Barty. Now, in terms of the pressures at the Australian Open, the loss to Mukova, I do think that's an exception. And that's one of those superficial things that unfortunately, mathematically, you can't quantify. But the pressures of playing in Australia are absolutely a thing for Ashley Barty. She wants to win that event more than she wants to win any event in her career, justifiably so. And so I think we saw blips in the radar, but I also think the corrections we've seen since then, I mean, Jeff, she's won titles on grass, on clay, on hard courts. She's won them at the highest level events as well. She is always six finals and 12 total events. She is always in the mix uh, at the big events. I think she's answered a lot of questions and like 
again, I think if we're making the ecosystem moving forward, a lot of pathways are going to have to go through Ashley Barty because Osaka's ceiling may be higher. Sabalenka's ceiling may be higher. Bianca on, Andreescu's Alex, ceiling. Maybe. Yeah, you're right. Maybe. Their ceilings are higher. Oh, well, yeah, they are on hard courts. I, I, I can't speak to grass or clay courts yet, but... Um, you can't you know, speak to the clay court ceiling of Madrid champion Arena Sabalenka. Yeah, you're right. That's on me. I mean, even Iga, though, probably belongs in that conversation. Maybe have the higher ceiling. But the highest floor, and that floor is damn high, of any player on the WTA Tour is Ashley Barty's. And in this era in particular, I feel like that matters more than anything. Yeah, that could be. I mean, you got to get to these matches. Um it's what you mentioned about the backhand. You think the backhand is more solid. And we're talking about the topspin backhand, not the just the slice, right? Well, both have gotten better, but I agree the topspin in particular is what I'm referencing. Yeah. So I do kind of have stats for that. Um, oh, let's go. If so, so this is match charting project stuff. And of course, we don't have every match charted. And unfortunately, we don't have any. Well, look in the table I'm looking at right now, we don't have anything since Wimbledon. I just, somebody just sent me a chart for the Cincinnati final. So that'll be up here soon. But. Um, I've got this stat called backhand potency, which uh-huh. basically just looks at how many points you're winning off your backhand based on backhand winners hit and then worth less, but still worth something are backhands, the shot before the winner. So presumably at least some of those shots are doing the work that sets up a winner or, or forces an error, unforced error or something like that. So this stat is called backhand potency or BHP. And I've also got a rate stat version backhand potency per 100 backhands. So the, the counting stat isn't that helpful with Barty since she doesn't hit that many, especially at Wimbledon, like, her numbers are 2, 0.5, 1.5. It's not very interesting because she just doesn't hit a lot of backhands. But the rate stat lets you see what would happen if she you know, hit a lot more of them. And over her career, we have over 100 Ashley Barty matches charted. And over her career, her backhand has been a net negative, um, which I, I forget what the average is on this stat. I don't think the average is zero. I think the average is, is slightly positive. So on average, her backhand is, is this is a topspin backhand, is worse than average. And all through Wimbledon, we have five of her seven Wimbledon matches charted. All five of those matches, um, she was quite strongly positive. Now, I mean, I, I don't want to put too much weight on Wimbledon since she's obviously slicing a lot, so she's not hitting a ton of topspin backhands. But long story short, her last five charted matches, she's been not only positive, but above average in backhand potency. And that's the sort of terror. It's like you're talking about the floor here. If we were talking about Ashley Barty's floor maybe three years ago, we'd say, ah, the backhand is a real weakness. That's where she's vulnerable. And she is still negative in losses. I mean, it looks like Sabalenka can really bring out the worst in her backhand or expose the backhand. But aside from Sabalenka and that Charleston Bedosa loss we're talking about, she's basically been positive with a lot of room to spare for this entire season uh so there you go there's your stat i mean her her topspin backhand is better than average now i mean maybe we're even approaching like top quarter sort of range so that was a weakness and now gone no more opportunities there so what you're telling me is serena navratilova everett Groff, Sellis, who is always left off that list. Monica Sellis, criminally underrated. Criminally underrated. Her, what was it, the three-year run, four-year run, 88 to 91, is just, you look at the numbers, it's silly, Jeff. Just ridiculous. But are you telling me that 
I should now – oh, Ennin, Justine Ennin, who I forgot there. Should I put Barty on that list with this backhand improvement? Is that what you're telling me? I'm saying <laughs> – I'm saying I can see her putting up the results that get her on that list. But it goes back to how, where I started pushing back against, against your case for this season is we don't have the evidence that she doesn't belong on the list which sounds like a really a, a weak cop-out thing to say, but it's basically just saying if I'm looking at a list of results where someone is, I mean, I, I take your point about top 20. I agree the top 20 is great right now, but if someone keeps beating number 15, then okay, they're great. They're really good at beating number 15, but no matter how many times you beat number 15, I'm not going to pronounce you one of the best players of all time. I mean, it's not fair to her that she's not getting a shot every week at Sabalenka or Osaka or a healthy Andreescu or a, a few other players. But until she does, or until she just, I mean, in, until she, she just racks up a bunch of easy wins against them, even if they're, they have to be spaced out, like we just don't have the evidence. So Maybe the way she's playing right now is top 10 of all time, but yeah, we just don't have the evidence. Should it count against 2007 Justine Ennin? And by the way, I don't think I've ever heard you laugh like you did 22 top 10 wins. Should it count against her that one, two, three, four, five, six, seven of them were against Yelena Yankovic? Huh. Wow. I think Yankovic is a little underrated as well. Ooh, this is, see, this is why I bring you on. Give me that well, take. Well, no, I, uh, I wish I had that take. Um, <laughs> it's, it, it's one of those things I've sort of stumbled on and, and quickly moved on from. Cause I mean, <laughs> I can't think of a lot of contexts where I'm going to have this conversation. So I'm, I'm underprepared, but no, I, she's not underrated. Like Celis is underrated, yeah. but I think, uh, especially someone of, of your modest age, Alex, yes. you might have, you might have missed peak Yankovic oh, I, I was missed. that was my beginnings like that okay. right when I started watching tennis was she was losing I mean I remember when like she smiled because they showed her on camera and it was like a thing at the U.S. Open it's like why is this a thing that's one of my first tennis memories okay so she we know she had her moments I think that it's easy to look back at these players who were top five for a while or top seven or eight but not i know she was number one but not like a real commanding number one and and not look down at them but just feel like they aren't they weren't credible contenders the way they truly were like if you think about if you think about sangha in his peak years like you and i know better than to say sangha was ever an easy win because he, he wasn't at his peak i mean even if he was outside the top 10 he's a really tough match but I think maybe in 10 years, people will say, oh, yeah, another one of those Frenchmen who couldn't put it all together. OK, so Federer beat him 13 times or whatever. OK, that only counts for so much. I I don't want to put Yankovic quite as high as Sanga, but I think it's close. I think she just stuck around for a while. And I mean, she was like a number 30 type player for a while. So it's easy to feel like she was overrated or mm-hmm. she, she wasn't as good as her ranking said she was back at, in her peak. But I mean, she was a she was such a steady player. Um, she could hit so many angles. Like it, it it, w- it wasn't a long period of time, but I I feel like it, I'm not looking looking at the results right now. But I feel like if she got to that many matches against Justine that year, I'm guessing she beat some awfully good players to get there. Uh, and yeah, I think her game deserves that. So I mean, m- maybe they matched up well. I guess you can make that case, even if it's 
even if it's someone like Serena or Barty, then there are players who you just match up well against. That's fine. But uh, I don't know if that's the case for Henan and Yankovic. I feel like you put Yankovic in this year's draw. She finds her way to the quarterfinals. That's just her talent. Like she would, she would be there. No doubt about that. But all of that is to say, yeah, Ashley Barty's on the short list. If she plays her best tennis, she's going to be in the semifinals, finals of this event. I think there are two players. It's her and I want to say, uh, I wanna, is it Mukova? No, no, it's not Mukova. Who's the other one? Who were the Wimbledon quarterfinalists? Let's uh, figure that out. The point is, Barty is one of only two players to have multiple quarterfinals at slams this year. I, I don't think Mukova is the other one. I'll, it'll come to, back to me at some point. But, yeah, I, I, if she's number 1A on my list, I just think Osaka has to be. We're getting back to the list here now. Our top five players here to win this 2021 Wimbledon. Uh, Wimbledon, there we go. U.S. Open. I, I would go Naomi Osaka has to still be 1B because even with the lack of sample size of success for her of late, it's not – I know she was coming off of the success in New York entering this year's Australian Open, but there was a long layoff between the matches she played in New York and the matches she's played in Australia. And I know a lot has happened since then off the court for Naomi that obviously are going to factor into her on-court performance. Something we still know, Jeff – when Naomi Osaka plays her best tennis on a hard court, it's better than anyone else in the women's game. And I was looking at the ELO ratings coming into uh, this podcast. In terms of her, I think, refined hard court ELO, Ashley Barty has now actually passed Naomi Osaka for the first time. But in terms of their raw hard court ELO ratings, Osaka still slightly ahead of Ashley Barty. I still think that as well. Like, I still think if Naomi Osaka serves well, her best is still better than any other women in the in the women's game on a hard court. And so she has to be 1B to me because I haven't seen anything, to get back to the party argument, that suggests she can't turn it on in, in a, the flash of a pan. She's done it before. Yeah, she's done it. I mean, it, I, there's something I might have said on a previous episode with you that it, it is a way I like to think about these things is – if this person wins, will I be surprised? Or how much will I be surprised? Or why will I be surprised? And if Osaka wins the US Open, yeah, I won't be surprised. Um, you really won multiple slams so recently. And that's one thing that's tricky about this field is there's a lot of players who you wouldn't really be surprised by. Uh, and you're right, the, the, the peak level is so high. I just think with, with every day that's passed since... I mean, let's say the, the day that she pulled out of the French Open. I'm not exactly sure if that's where you should start dating it from. But hmm. for many months now, we've gotten less and less information about Osaka's current form. So the way I envision that is like every day that goes by that you don't get new information to update your estimates with, like your error bar just keeps getting wider and wider. And I mean, I, I have that literally baked into my ELO ratings. If someone's injured or absent from the tour for a while, they not only lose a few points because usually injuries end up hurting players, but uh, but also when they come back, their ratings adjust more based on their next results because we just didn't know. So winning a match against number 10 in the world, it tells you more about the player if they haven't played in six months than if you had an up-to-date rating on them based on 10 matches in the last month. And Osaka's error bar right now is so wide. Like, I'm not sure. Would you be more surprised or less surprised if she won two matches and then withdrew? I mean, is that more surprising or less surprising than her winning the tournament? 
I think it's she either loses in the first week or she wins the event. Like, I know those are the extremes, but I, and to your point, like, I agree with you. You look at the last 52, 24 and 5 overall. Now, those five losses were round of 32 Madrid, round of 32 Rome. Obviously, she withdraws from Roland Garros, round of 16 at the Olympics, round of 16 in Cincinnati. I actually thought she played pretty well, though, at the Western Southern Open. I don't think she served her best. And you look at the first serve percentage 57% against Goff, 51% against Teichman. I thought everything else but the serve looked good enough for Naomi Osaka that if her serve starts landing, she's going to win the U.S. Open. That, to me, is why it's 1B. It was an eye test thing as much as a past performance credit that she gets. She has won the last two hardcore Grand Slams. I, like, the loss to Teichman, 3-6-6-3-6-3, that's appreciated in value, right? Teichman goes on to make the final. She was crushing everyone, and Naomi Osaka probably should have beaten her and so I just like I'm not going to hold that lost against Naomi I actually think she answered a lot of questions in that one and if it's a question of is she going to perform as a server yes or no the bet I'm going to take is yes now again I think she's more likely to lose second round than she would in the finals of this event but I, I, I like it, if she gets to the second week. I said this on a previous podcast. She becomes the favorite to me, even over Ashley Barty. I'm not sure whether I'd go that far, but I see the point. Like I, I would say, yeah, if she, I'm not sure if I'd say that the fourth round. I feel like she could still somebody like Mukova or could take her out in the fourth round. Yeah, that she, would be the interesting day. I agree with you. Let's say, yeah, if she gets to the quarterfinal, I would say she's one of the top. Too. I don't think I'd put her above Barty even then, but, but yeah, I mean, and I'm not going to update my, my ratings throughout the tournament, but that's effectively what effectively what would happen. Like we have sort of a stale rating for Osaka at this point, and if she did win four matches, then I mean that would be a big vote of confidence in here, and her it would mean more for her rating, I think, than it would for Barty to win the same four matches, and that's I mean that's exactly how my intuition would work as well. That I mean. It, it, it's a crude way of putting it, but Osaka kind of has something to prove right now. Um, maybe not to herself, maybe not to like people in the real world, but to someone who's trying to predict tennis matches, she definitely has something to prove. Uh, and yeah, she can do that in the first week. She's going to play some good players because there aren't a whole lot of easy outs after the first round of a women's grand slam right now. So she will be tested. And if she passes that test, then yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't want to face her in the quarters or the semis or probably the finals. If you knew going in they were both going to play their best tennis, would you pick Osaka or Barty? This is where we can leave these top two. Well, A, I have to – well, my my number zero answer to your question that I'm bullet pointing here before I get to number one is I do not have Osaka at number two. I put Osaka at number five because I'm – just that guy. But I want, I mean, my point is she needs to be in the top five. She definitely needs okay. to be in this conversation, but I, I don't think she's number two. Um, but I mean, it, it's, it's really close. I guess technically you have to say, you have to say it is Osaka because I mean, she has the hardcore slams. I mean, it's, it's been almost two years, but Osaka did win their last head to head. Uh, that was on a hard court. So, I mean, I, I guess I lean Osaka, but it's just, it, it's like a hypothetical, hypothetical question. We don't even fully know what Barty's best level is right now on a hard court. And then 
that on top of the hypothetical of imagining them both at that best level. So it's like a 55-45 situation at best. But I guess, yeah, I lean Naomi. Yeah, it's fair. It's just that's to me why she has to be, and she is number two on my list behind Vardy, I suppose 1B, because of all of the players on the WTA Tour, if I think, okay, well, if they're playing their best tennis, who can beat Ashley Vardy? The first name that does come to my head on a hard court is Naomi Osaka. Now, of course, I imagine the second name is a name we share. But before we do that, I do have to ask you, and I think we have to talk about quickly, Serena Williams withdraws from the 2021 U.S. Open. Now, she was not in my top five list. I anticipate she was not in your top five either, although perhaps you will say I am incorrect in that manner. But, you know, again, it's just worth uh, mentioning for those of you who have yet to hear Serena Williams withdraw early this morning she says after careful consideration and following the advice of my doctors and medical team i've decided to withdraw from the u.s open to allow my body to heal completely from a torn hamstring new york is one of the most exciting cities in the world and one of my favorite places to play i'll miss seeing the fans but we'll be cheering everyone on from afar thank you for your continued support and love i'll see you soon heart serena all of that said i i again she wasn't in my top five list I think this has been a tough season for Serena. The on and off, the starting, the stopping, the withdrawal from uh, the French Open clearly impacting her heading into Wimbledon where she has to withdraw midway through her first uh, round of match with an injury. I mean, it. look, it makes sense for Serena Williams. At some point, it was always it, – it ends for every player. And for Serena Williams, 39 years old this season, she's played so many matches on her body. Uh, she's, you know, just a lot of tennis – do we see Serena Williams, A, on tour again? B, it, do you think that chase for 24, does she ever fin- Does she ever get back into the, even a Grand Slam final, I suppose, Jeff? And I, I your don't reaction think so. to all of this. Yeah, I I don't think she gets to 24. I, and and again, we're, we're talking about this this giant increasing error bar um, to, to stick with the, the math terminology that I know every <laughs> one of your listeners loves. Um <laughs> We ha- she had the solid results in Australia this year, so we know she's not that far removed from from being at, not her best, nowhere near her best, but at a competitive level that can threaten for Grand Slams. But I don't know, like it, like you say, there's so much tennis in her body. There's so many injuries she's dealt with. I mean, it, it, even though it's been a couple of years now, I think it's impossible to to really understand what going through a pregnancy and what sounds like a difficult childbirth will, will do to you long-term. There's always been the question of whether she's hundred percent committed to tennis. I mean, it's silly to talk about this with Serena because for a while she could be less than hundred percent committed and still win everything. So, I mean, in one way, that's a testament to how great she has been in another way. It's, it makes me think, Mm, it's it's maybe not going to be quite as hard for her to leave as it is for other people. Um, the chase for 24, I think, complicates that a little bit because she does want that last slam. But I don't know. And, and as a fan, I was recently thinking about this, that it seems like there's always a couple players hanging around at the end of their career dealing with injuries or thinking about comebacks or something like that. And for casual fans there's so few tennis players who make up their interest in the sport. And for so many people, Serena is one, a one B two, three, four, five, and six on that list. So she's, she's so important to so many fans and and their enjoyment of tennis. And that's, that's great 
for someone who follows tennis as closely week in, week out as you and I, and presumably many of your listeners do, I can't help but think that Serena has stopped mattering that much. Like I, you're right. She wasn't on my top five list. I probably wouldn't have put her on a top 10 list. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not sure where she'd go on my, uh, on my list, but my last few forecasts have given her around a 2% chance of winning the title going into the tournament. So maybe, maybe number 20th or so in the draw. I'm not really sure, but that feels about right. She's not super consequential. Um, from a pure tennis perspective, losing her out of the draw is not that different from losing Elena Rabakina or something. Maybe Rabakina means a lot to you. I don't know, but it's <laughs> so it, it, it to me, we've gotten now to this point where culturally it's super important when Serena Williams pulls out of a tournament. Tennis wise, eh, I don't think I don't think it really matters that much. And there's a lot of interesting questions and 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 just to do an annoying plug, my my last. Um, long form podcast episode was with Jerry Marzorati, who wrote a book about Serena mm-hmm. called Seeing Serena, I think it was called. Um, and he has some super interesting observations about everything Serena. I recommend the book and and the podcast is a good way to get into his his take and thoughts about Serena. I mean, she's so interesting, but she's less and less interesting because of her impact at the top of the tennis world. And that, that just means... Yeah, whatever we were thinking about the U.S. Open, it's the same today as it was yesterday. It's fair. One Serena stat that would work in her favor, there are eight players who are top 20 or better in both hold percentage and break percentage. And I'll break them down by tier in a second. But those eight are Sviantek, Muguruza, Jabour, Sakari, Collins, Barty, Sabalenka, and Serena Williams. Now, Serena Williams just sneaks into that list. I think she's 19th or 20th in terms of her break percentage this season all of this is to say she's still good, but good isn't good enough to just guarantee her now finals and appearances and shots at Grand Slam titles because there are so many players that are really freaking good. There are now 13 players that rank top 25 in both hold and break percentage. And like, well, again, we'll get into those names in a second, but the, the problem for Serena is the field has caught up and her best isn't quite as good as it once was. And it's just that that gap between those two things, you know, the field is only going to get better and Serena's best, with respect, is only going to continue to decline. So to ask her to just, you know, show up at a Wimbledon and make the final round, that's a really tough ask at this point of her career. Now, of course, that doesn't mean we still don't all relish the chance to get to see Serena to compete. And of course, we are all rooting for her to get back on court and she's earned the right to end her career however she wants to end her career no one's saying that but to your point jeff i agree with you from a tennis standpoint she wasn't going to be in my top five she wasn't going to be in my top 10 she wasn't going to be my pick to win this u.s open and you know again i i I think you can now say that comfortably uh even whenever we see serena in the draw even at wimbledon and so with that said uh because i don't want to keep you here too long today let's get back into the list who's number two for you well, you know who number two is. Yeah, Alex. all right, good. Let's do the Sabalika conversation. One of these days, she's going to win a Grand Slam, and it's going to take like sixty-five minutes per match. And everyone in America, well, everyone in the world, but this is the U.S. Open, so everyone in America is going to be sort of shell shocked by watching how dominant she is. I mean, we all know this is going to happen, right? It's just a matter of how long she makes us wait. Yeah. 
I it's a fair take. And look, I, I mentioned it. Sabalenka for the first time all season has dropped out of the top fifteen club. She's now top twenty in both hold and break percentage. Her break percentage has fallen. I believe she's sixteenth now in break percentage. So she just misses the top fifteen club. But if you want to go top sixteen, it's Sviantek, Muguruza, Sabalenka, and Own Shabur in that category. I mean, you look for uh, her now. I'm sad to say she's added. So I think it's now fifteen of her last 18 losses have been three set losses so even in the matches she loses still she plays a set of dominant tennis I mean yeah I agree with you and we haven't talked about the Wimbledon results since it happened the relief on her shoulders when she beat Rabakina and could there have been a better opponent from the tennis gods than Elena Rabakina in that Sabalenka match because it was just like okay see ball hit ball big I don't even have to think about a game plan things aren't going to get complicated this match is going to be played at one speed and one speed alone and there was just a relief in her shoulders winning that match, getting to a second week. Obviously, she ends up making the semifinals. I thought it was a pretty good match against Pliskova. That had more to do with Pliskova than Arena, although obviously it wasn't Sabalenka's best performance. But I thought semifinals in Canada was good. Like, I, I didn't need a title run from her. I just needed, after a long layoff, her to come out, shake off the rust. Sometimes it takes her two or three matches to get started. That wasn't the case there. I mean, she's third on my list. Like, don't worry. We don't have them far apart, Jeff. I, I agree with you. Why can't she win this? Yeah, there's absolutely no reason why she can't win this. So it, it, since you're mentioning Pliskova, I'll, I'll plow ahead with my list. I have Pliskova number three behind Barty and Sabalenka. Interesting. Make the case. Yeah. I mean, for one thing, we've seen she can beat Sabalenka. <laughs> Unfortunately, <laughs> she's, she's made that case very um, – it's, it, it's such a weird such, – such a weird year she's having. I mean, she she has three losses to Camilla Georgie. She has, <laughs> I mean, it, I, my page says I think it's three losses to Pegula, but I could have sworn it was eighteen losses to Jessica <laughs> Pegula. Uh, it's it's four actually, so I was I was right. It's more than three. Uh, but I mean, I don't even know how to explain that. It's so so incredibly weird. So I mean, for totally different reasons, she's kind of like the other the other Osaka I mean I wouldn't be surprised if Pliskova wins the tournament I wouldn't be surprised if she loses to a qualifier in the second round um it's, it's but we know we know she's slam finalist quality I mean she's made the U.S. Open final before um we like I said we know she can beat Sabalenka she has lots of top 10 wins in her career not a lot this year actually I'm I'm maybe haven't thought this through as well as I should. She hasn't beaten <laughs> any top 10 players except for Sabalenka this year. But again, that's sort of like the Barty excuse. Like she hasn't faced a lot of them. So she hasn't, she hasn't had a lot of opportunities there, partly because she keeps losing to Pegula in the early rounds. But I, I, I don't know. It's, it's, it, it, it's so hard to make a, a, an open and shut case for any player that, when you see someone who has the recent form, who probably isn't going to have to play Georgie or Pegula in the first week, um, I, I I think she's up there. I mean, obviously she has the weapons. I one thing that I loved before the Wimbledon semifinal, I think she said something like like Yeah, Sabalink is tough, but I think I have a game that can make things difficult for her. Uh, I'm paraphrasing, but I think that's pretty close. And 
that's exactly what happened. I mean, she kind of broke down Arena Sabalenka, which admittedly is not the hardest thing in the world to do, but <laughs> pull it for someone like Plishka pulling it off in the final four at Wimbledon, that's that's an accomplishment. So in again, it's it's tough to talk about recent form, and recent form in, in, includes two losses to Georgie and a loss to Teichman, but I mean it, it seems like the the losing finalist at the last slam is someone who deserves to be in that conversation. I don't see good reasons to exclude her from it. So yeah, that's my pledge for the case. It's fair. And it again, safe to say, and it's small sample size, but of course, tennis is plagued with small sample sizes. She's been a different player really since the start of the grass court season. And even in her loss in Berlin to Pegula or her loss in Eastbourne to Georgie, she played better in those two matches if you watch them and then obviously her serving at Wimbledon just picked up and she's kind of held on to that pace ever since and when Karolina Pliskova's landing serves she's a completely different player I would say it's her and Benchich are my two favorite ball strikers in the women's game just their ability I mean Sabalink is in a different category Jeff I hear you panicking on the other side of the zoom don't worry <laughs> um but yeah when she's hitting the ball confidently from the center of the court she just her feel her power I mean there were times when she was playing Teichman and you're playing the lefty heavy spin she's just like bunting down on the ball it's just so enjoyable to watch why she's not in my top five list the moment you put expectations in onto Karolina Pliskova you just have gotten disappointed over the last five years and I think what was so enjoyable about Wimbledon is she came in with no pressure because she had just fallen out of the top 10 of the rankings and it was like just a year from hell loss after loss to Pegula and then she has this breakthrough run out of nowhere where she just plays confident you know loose tennis and she's managed to maintain that through uh, these past few months, and I guess it's just I don't want the burden of my expectations placed on her. I'm like, let, let, if anything, it's going to be after, you know, it's a, it's a cherry on top because I am afraid you start to say, oh, Pliskova, Pliskova, Pliskova. That's when things go wrong. Okay, so I, I, I do have to go pretty soon. So what's your last name in the top five? Yeah, I was going to say, so I'm, I have two names I'm considering because I've got Barty, Osaka, Sabalenka. I snuck in Muguruza. Because okay. I, I'm old enough to remember her run through those Middle Eastern hardcore events earlier this year. And I know that was a lifetime ago. But she was the best player. And I think through the first – because she had the match point, obviously, on Osaka in Australia. I think through the first three months of the season, and you look, there's a reason. The top 15 club right now, Sviantec, Muguruza, Jabour, even with all of the losses, Muguruza is still top 15 in both hold and break percentage. She's a big match player. You look at her losses of late. I think it was the three-set loss in both Canada and Cincinnati. She just plays the best match players close. She plays the big matches close. She's got all of the tools you would want on a hard court match. Finding that peak has been difficult, but she's another player. If she can get to week two, I want no part of Garbine Muguruza in the second week in New York. Yeah, I think she'd be in my top five with one good result. And she just, I guess they, she had a pretty easy draw to get to the Tokyo quarters. That's... We know she was injured on clay. I'm not sure she's back yet. I think if she, let's say she reaches the quarterfinals in New York and we have this conversation again the week before Australia, she's in my top five for Australia. I just, I just need to see something. Yeah, it's fair. It was three-set loss to Krejcikova, three-set loss to Sinyakova, quarterfinal loss to Rapakina. Those are her last three hardcore results for Muguruza in Tokyo. Those aren't bad. Like, that's solid. That's why, again, if she can find that peak, she belongs in the conversation now. Other funky names I have I'm considering would be Danielle Collins, just because 
man, has she been good. Petra Kvitova, again, her peak I still think is as good as a lot of peaks out there. We saw Belinda Bencic when she's striking the ball confidently from the center of the court, and she's got a ton of points to defend. I think her level is back. My final thought, because I know you do have to run. Here are your top 10, 15, 20, 25 clubs right now. I'm about to throw 13 names at you, but I think these names just make sense right now. These are your top 13 players. Sviantek's your only one top 10 in both. Top 15, you've got Muguruza and Jabour. Top 20, Sakari, Collins, Barty, Sabalenka, Serena. Top 25, you round out Halep, Krejcikova, Mertens, Goff, Bedosa. When the numbers match the eye test, Jeff, in tennis, I like to think I'm on to something. I think we're on to something there with that group. Yeah, Bedosa's the, the last person on my list, actually. Ooh. Um, and I don't have a great case for this one, except the fact that I just watched her third set tiebreak loss to Sabalenka in, was that Cincinnati? It was yeah. just last week. Um, and I mean, I did, it, she beat Sabalenka. I just said it was a, it, it was a loss. Um, yeah, beat she? Sabalenka 7-6 in the third. Okay, right. I, I'm confusing. Did she we don't, lose We don't talk set? about the losses. We don't like to talk about those. Right. Um, I, I did. I mean, I, I chart all the matches. I got through the whole thing. So she, it, I mean, there's a lot of close matches, which I'd normally be skeptical of. And then her last match is a retirement. So she pulled out against Plishkova in Cincinnati, which means there's another question mark. But watching that Sabalenka match, I can't come up with a good reason why she isn't winning more. And if if we'd had this conversation maybe eight months ago, I would have said, ah, oh, she's she's going to have a good result on clay. And she has had better results on clay. It's really been a breakthrough year for her. But I mean, I think she's got the tools to win on hard as well. Uh, the fact that she can go toe to toe with Sabalenka, that's really all the evidence you need that she that, that she's at that level. Um, I mean, do I expect her to make the semifinals here? Not really. But if can can I see it? I mean, I think she's going to break through sooner rather than later. It might not be here, but she's going to have a big hard court result. Let's say within the next 12 months, maybe 13 to encompass next year's U.S. Open. And you said, I think in, in your message, Alex, did you want one name outside the top 32? I did. I, that for me is why I snuck in the Danielle Collins because – Is she I, outside the top 32 really? She No, you're right. She might be back in it. Uh, I'll have to look at the rankings quickly. I mean, by the way, one of our favorite lines here on the Great Shot Podcast, shout out to me. The two players in the women's game who have made quarterfinals at multiple Grand Slams are Barty and Mukova. That's why that Mukova name was stuck in my head because it is her. Um, but one, yeah, give me your one player outside the top 32. It's tough. I was looking at the list, and you can make a case for a virtually everyone in the top 30, but it drops off kind of fast. I mean, there's some interesting players, but it's tough to pick one who could go all the way, and I'm going Clara Towson. <laughs> That's such a good pick. Oh, Danielle Collins, by the way, 26th. So she, or excuse me, 28th. So she is no longer qualifying. Towson's a great pick. That backhand down the line is just absolute money. I mean, I mean it's, he, it's early. Yeah, she, she's not really ready, but I mean, it, it's tough to go through that list of number 30 to number 120 I've or so. I've got two for you. I've yeah. got two for you both from the same home country. Kostyuk and Yastremska. I thought about both of them, actually. On the short list? I mean, the, the <laughs> one the one problem with Yastremska is that she's probably a little lopsided from the size of that chip on her shoulder. Yeah. <laughs> 
So if if she can keep her balance straight, then yeah, that's gonna be one one angry competitive young lady, and we know she has the game for it. So I think all three of those names, like they're gonna see a Grand Slam semifinal, let's say in the next five years. It's but yeah, it just shows how hard it is to pick somebody out of that list who can legit go all the way. I would never slander this to your face, but I'll say it since we're not via face to face here on this Zoom. There's a it, <laughs> two beers later, and I could be convinced that Diana Yastrzemska is the evolutionary Arena Sabalenka. I'm just saying, two beer, uh, probably six beers later, ah, uh, maybe twelve beers later. That's a twelve beer take. Um, why do you say? What is more evolutionarily advanced about Yastrzemska than Sabalenka? Because uh, <laughs> much like the Homo sapien removed the slouching over of the Homo erectus, Diana Yastrzemska has removed any sort of off speed from her game. It is one speed only. That's like we have this new form. We don't do that. We just go top speed all of the time. And that top speed is crazy. I feel like beer is the wrong substance for this conversation. <laughs> But that way I could be like, yeah, I know I'm wrong, but it's okay. Yeah, I mean, I'm, Yastrzemska might not be the only one. It, it seems like there's there's always players who are yeah. are trying that out. And, I mean, you would have said the same about Sabalenka just a couple of years ago. She was the extreme, and before that, Kvitova was the extreme, and now Kvitova doesn't even seem that aggressive anymore. It's no, wild how, how fast it has evolved. I don't know if I'm ready for that take. Kvitova doesn't feel aggressive anymore, but no, that's a take. I mean, you're not wrong. Like compared to the speed of a Rabakina to the yeah. I, again, it 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 just shows you where this game is at. But of course, I've kept you over time here. Before I let you go, plug everything. A tennis abstract podcast. Uh, the uh, you know just lay it on me, Jeff. Yeah, it's all at tennisabstract.com. I've been mostly on Twitter and podcasting sabbatical since the last time we talked, so there's not a whole lot of specific things to plug. I'm I am waist deep in 1930s women's tennis, so <laughs> I I'll be I, I'm gradually throwing that stuff up on Tennis Abstract. So if you want to see the late career of Helen Jacobs and Helen Wills, um, telling it, Tennis Abstract is now your your place to go. And I'll probably gradually have more of that stuff that I'll be talking about, but. Um, but I'll probably return from the 1930s and come back to, to 2020. Is it 2021? Yes, 2021. I think, I think so. Yeah, I'll, I'll come back to that for the U.S. Open. So, yeah, that, that's where we're at. But it's always tennisabstract.com. That's all my stuff. If you put me in the 1930s, would I be a Grand Slam champion? I get to know what I know now and have my racket. Hmm. I really don't. I mean, my gut feeling says no. I mean, I feel like. <laughs> Tilden would Tilden would give you thirty love in every game, and he'd still double bagel you. He'd chip and charge, and then I'd hit this two-handed topspin backhand, and he would accuse me of sorcery. I might be, you know, flamed as a witch. They'll be like, "You can't do that." I'll be like, "Oh, you have no idea." Watch this, and I'm gonna hit a lob, and he's gonna be like, "What? What?" Imagine, um, imagine, ah, uh, what? What am I thinking here? Let's take, let's take the tennis IQ of Jensen Brooksby. And add the weapons of Andre Agassi and put a wood racket in his hands. Do you beat that player? I would. No, come on. You don't even have to think about it. You don't beat that player. I mean, 
the thing is, he breaks 17 strings because it's like, how are you putting that spin on the ball? And it's like, well, they invent, you wait till they find out what the gut is. You just wait till you hear how they make synthetic gut string. It's revolutionary. Then they turn you, into polyesters and it's the next level. You've got to make all these good shots against someone with the best tennis IQ of all time and is probably positioning themselves right for every single shot. I, 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 all I'm saying is I'm a top. I'm not top 25 club. I'm top 27 club, and it's because my hold percentage is slipping. That would be my counter. I might need to see <laughs> video, Alex. I, I guess I don't have a good enough grasp uh, on your precise level. So 2017 we, Club Tennis YouTube uh, YouTube Club Tennis National Championships 2017. That's 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 if you really want to go down a rabbit hole. If you're super bored today, there you okay, go. Okay, well I'll I'll put I'll split screen that with um <laughs> with, with Helen with Willis. Some, yeah, there you go yeah with helen willis and we'll see where it stacks up it's perfect but on That's... that note no again i appreciate you going over time here jeff i know you have to rock and roll but thank you so much for taking the time to chat you know a spot is always open for you and i'm sure we will have you on again soon great looking forward to it hope all of you enjoyed my conversation with tennis abstracts jeff sackman a huge thank you to jeff as always for taking the time to chat if you're not already add tennis abstract to your daily routines it will make you a more well-informed tennis fan you hear me reference it all the time on the show don't you want to know why tennisabstract.com a huge thank you to jeff for all he does for all of us who want to cover the game closely of course this is just one of our many preview podcasts regarding the 2021 u.s open we talked men's dark horses with tennis channels david kane yesterday we've got fantastic conversation tomorrow looking at the men's contenders with Gil Gross. We've got Chris Otto coming on the show later in the week to talk American tennis. We'll get into the draw breakdowns as they come out as well. U.S. Open qualifying talk on our website, an article written by our friend Damian Koost. We're covering it all here at Cracked Rackets to ensure all of you get your full enjoyment out of the year's final Grand Slam. Of course, if you've missed any of our content, you can find it all on our website, CrackRackets.com. We're recapping Winston-Salem, Chicago, and Cleveland this week. On the Mini Break podcast, we're actually on Press Row this week in Winston-Salem, so I got the chance to sit down with Emil Rusevori one-on-one. I should have said Emil Rusevori, as I learned how to pronounce. Uh, we had about a 10-minute conversation. You can find that on the Cracked Interviews podcast, as well as our conversations with brand-new Cracked Rackets athletes, Can and Kingsley and Isabel Boulay. Getting a lot of fun content coming down the pipeline. So like, rate, subscribe, review to this show, the Mini Break Cracked Interviews podcast. All of our shows, you leave a comment on there. It does help us. So I appreciate all of you who have. I appreciate all of you who will take the time to do so. It takes like 30 seconds, I promise. And then if you all do it, I don't have to ask anymore. So appreciate all of you who do that. Of course, if you need the more immediate updates, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, we are at Cracked Rackets. You want to message me directly, I'm at Great Shot Pod. A shout out, as always, to our super producers, Max Fligner and Daniel Westoff, for the fuck of an editing job they do day in, day out. Shout out as well to our friends over at Turn Tennis. Remember, contact sales at uniquesports.com or call 800-554-3707. With all that said, for our fantastic guests, Jeff Sackman, our super producers, Fleekter and Westoff, our friends over at Turn Tennis, and from all of us here at both Crack Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You know what we say. Hey, great shot, and we will see you all tomorrow. Thanks, everyone.